My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we are in a series called Fishers of Men, and we're in about week number five, and it's all about sharing the truth of what Jesus told us and, and how we can share with our friends and family and coworkers and, and understand the message. And, and it's interesting because Jesus went to his disciples when he first met them and he said, come and follow me. And then he made them this incredibly weird promise. He said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They had no idea what that meant. I don't know what you're talking about, fishers of men. But he said, you follow me, and it's not that you're going to become one on your own. It's not that you're going to learn how to do it. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. In fact, if you follow me, you will become a fisher of men. If you want to see mature believers, they're constantly fishing for other people. And so we've been in this series talking about what that means. And during the second, I think it was the second week, I said, you know, we're to be ready to give a reason why we have the hope that we have. When people ask, people are gonna to come to us and they're gonna go, I see something in you that's different. I see something in you that I don't really understand it. It happened to me again this week. Somebody came and said, I need what you have and I don't know what you have, but I need it. And I told us, you need to be ready because no one's gonna to come to you and say, can you explain the entire Bible, all of human history and God's presence in our midst? They're not gonna ask you that. They're gonna come because of something they see in you. And they're gonna to wanna to know. And through your life, God has been building your story. You didn't realize it maybe, but every event you've ever had, God's been building. And so I said, you know, you need to be ready. You need to have your story down in about three minutes to share with somebody what God's done in your life. And this is something I believe every believer should be able to do. So if somebody came to me and said, well, what's your story? I would tell them, look, I grew up in a church. My dad was a deacon. My mom, we were in church every Sunday, Monday. It seemed like we lived in church. But when I got to be about 16, I had a lot of questions because I didn't know if I believed because my parents believed or whether I believed. And so I started asking questions and they told me to quit asking, that it was disrespectful. And so I assumed they didn't have any answers because they certainly weren't living like they believed what was in this book. And so I walked away from church. I never walked away from Jesus, but I walked away from church for 18 years. And I became my own God. I did my own thing. I did what I wanted to do. The world told me I'd be successful if I just worked hard and did all kinds of things. And so by the time I was 32, I'd already achieved everything professionally I wanted to achieve. I had a busy medical practice. I was who's who among Phoenix's doctors. I took care of the rich and famous and the very poor. Uh, I just sold a practice. We had a lot of money. I had three, a wife and three kids that were wonderful. And we lived, I'm not kidding, on Paradise Lane. It didn't get any better than that. And by the time I was 32 years old, I'd achieved everything I ever wanted to achieve. And I remember one day pulling my car into the garage and thinking I can't keep going. I am so empty inside. They told me if I was wealthy, if I had money, if I had resources, I'd have happiness. I don't have happiness. In fact, I'm miserable. Something's missing and it's, I, I don't know what to do. And I'm worried about everything. I'm worried about losing my money. I'm worried about people getting sick. I'm worried about my kids. I worry about people that don't worry. I can't sleep because I'm worried all the time. And then I met somebody and they, they had a peace about them that I, I wanted. I didn't know where it came from, but I wanted it. 
They had problems in their lives, but they didn't worry about them like I did, and they seemed to have joy. So I went to them and I said, hey, what's the secret? What medicine are you on? They said, it's Jesus. I said, oh man, I don't want it to be Jesus. And yet it was. And they said, look, all you have to do is just take the first step and God will meet you there. And then she told me about the first step and God did meet me there and it completely changed my life. That's what we're gonna talk about today. What is the first step? What happens after you give your testimony and they look you in the eye and they go, well, now what do I do? I want what you have. How do I begin a journey with Jesus? Well, the problem is we've made it way too complicated. Once we share our testimony, people say, okay, what must I do to be saved? I, you got my attention, I understand, I, what do I do? And a lot of times this is where we start getting weird. This is where the tongue tie happens. But the gospel message is incredibly simple. It is so simple. We've made it so complicated. In fact, some people have made this message so complicated that many people have rejected it. And what they rejected was actually a counterfeit, distorted view of what Jesus really said. They didn't reject what he said. They reject what we made up that we said he said. In fact, more often than I'd like to report, many people have rejected what was a counterfeit or distorted view of what Christ actually said. Today, I hope to remedy that. I want us to all leave today very clear on what Jesus promised. I want us to be able to share our testimony succinctly and efficiently, and then I want us to be able to share the gospel message succinctly and efficiently. That's what we're gonna do today. In fact, I'm gonna make the gospel message so simple that we can all leave here today totally comfortable, that we can share the promise of Jesus with every person who comes to us and says, why do you have the hope that you have? So people often come and they say, how, how do I become a Christian? What, what do you need to do to be a follower of Christ? And what do you need to know? Those are their two questions. What do I need to know? What do I need to do? Well, let me ask you this question. What do you need to know to believe in gravity? Huh. That looks pretty overwhelming, that's a lot. I have to understand all this to believe in gravity? Hmm. It's been a long time since I even knew what any of those symbols meant, but I just have to know that and I'll believe in gravity. Hmm. All right, well, it turns out all you need to know to have full and total confidence in gravity is to experience it. Everything falls. Big things, little things, light things, heavy things, round things, square things, no matter what, when you drop it, they fall. Simple, right? See, we believe in gravity because things go to ground. They always go to ground. Every time we drop something, there it goes, right to ground. Do I need to know that? No. Are you gonna ask me to explain it? I hope not. What I know is in my experience, gravity exists. I learned this lesson from Andy Stanley years ago, that gravity exists. 
You just have to experience it. You don't need to fully understand it. You don't need to be able to explain it or teach it to anybody. You don't need to argue about any of these formulas. Every time, over and over, you don't have to defend it. You just experience it. Every time. When I drop things, they go to ground. I believe in gravity. Not because I can explain any of that, but because I've experienced it. Over and over. I just keep dropping stuff, and it keeps going to the ground. Eventually, you see it so much that you just believe it's going to occur every time. No matter what, my whole life, things have just gone to ground. Day after day, apple after apple, it's still there. Still dropping. You see, believing in gravity is not about knowledge or understanding or intelligence. You just know in your heart when you let go of something, it's going to the ground. First few times, you're probably amazed. You wondered, you threw thinking, oh, it still went to the ground. Okay. I know that because when I was about three, I tried to be Superman and I went to ground. <laughs> Eventually, you just know. I don't have to get up here and get you guys convinced that there's gravity around us. You're sitting in the chair because you've experienced it. All you need to know is what you've seen. That's all it takes to believe. Drop the apple. Later on, you'll learn more about gravity. But for right now, experience is enough for you to completely believe without a doubt that gravity exists. Can't explain it, but I believe it. You may decide tomorrow, I'm going to go join the Gravity Awareness Club. I'm going to go join. You may even be a regular member already. I don't know. But you're going to go to the Gravity Regular Member Club. You may even volunteer. They may put you in their children's area. You don't know. You may decide to give money to the Gravity Awareness Club. The first time you arrive, you're going to walk in. It's going to be weird. They're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff you don't understand because they've been studying gravity their whole life. You walk in and you're like, I believe in gravity, but I haven't got a clue what you guys are talking about. That's okay. You can still join the gravity club. You can still come in and study and understand and learn about gravity. And the more you learn, the more you're around other people who believe in gravity, you'll begin to understand what it's all about. You'll learn more about it. That's all you need to know. It's that simple. It's also that simple, becoming a follower of Christ. You join because of based on what you've experienced. At first, you can't believe that you're experiencing God. You can't believe it, but you know it. And then it keeps happening. And you know in your heart, even though you have no idea how, you couldn't explain it on your best day. I, I can't explain it, but I know. I just know because of what I've experienced. You see, I, you and I can follow Jesus and know almost nothing about him. We don't have to explain creation versus evolution. End times and revelation, although we tried. How Noah's ark was actually cleaned up afterwards. We don't have to know that. How many Johns there are in the Bible? We don't even know how to, if we, we don't have to know how to pronounce Job or Job. It doesn't matter. We don't need to know that to follow Jesus. Once you become a Christian, you'll learn that stuff. It'll happen. In fact, you'll start wanting to learn that stuff. That's a really weird thing, too. 
oddly, you'll be drawn to the things of God. You'll likely have an incredible appetite to start studying the Bible and to start being around others who've had the same experience that you've had. But initially, beginning your walk with Jesus is incredibly simple. We've made it super complicated, but God made it simple. Once you follow him, he changes you into a true Christ follower. He changes you. You don't decide to become. You don't make yourself into anything. You surrender. He turns you into what he wants you to be, a fisher of men, a disciple of Christ, more like Christ. That happens over time, but to begin the walk takes almost very little. You see, we got to commit to not being a convert, but to being a disciple. Not somebody who just says a prayer, but somebody who actually has a desire to want to be more like Christ. And the crazy thing is, I talk about it every week, it's not something that you make happen, it's something that happens to you. And you can't explain it, but you know God is changing you. It's a lot like being pregnant. I've never been pregnant. <laughs> Throw it out there, confession time. Um, but when a woman is pregnant, she knows there's new life in her before anything shows. New believers are just like that. They know life is new in them. They know they've experienced God. They know something in them is incredibly wonderful, but they may not start showing for a while. Doesn't change the fact that there's new life in them. You see, it's not normal to follow Jesus. In fact, look around, most clearly are not. It's the same in Jesus' day too. His teaching was completely radical. In fact, he was completely countercultural. What he taught went against everything that they knew and learned. He was the ultimate countercultural guru teacher. Many today say, I want to be revolutionary. I want to do something different. You want to be different? Follow Jesus. That'll make you different. You can join the Jesus Club. You see, in our world, everybody's promoting sin. Try to live a holy life in this world and you'll understand what it means to be countercultural. See, we're against the culture of sin because Jesus was. That's why he came. Sin was destroying what he created and he came to fix it. One of Jesus' followers was a man named Paul and he put it this way, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, over time, Jesus is gonna transform everybody who chooses to believe and trust in him. He'll do so by changing your mind about things. Not something you willfully do, not something you decide to do, you just begin to change. Your opinions all of a sudden start aligning with God's. Your desires start aligning with God's. The things you used to do, you don't want to do anymore and you don't know why. It wasn't that you decided not to do those things, you just don't want to do them. And there's a lot to learn about becoming a disciple of Christ. But joining him to begin the journey is simple. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. What do I need to do to begin a journey with Jesus Christ? What do I need to do? And in order to be able to share with people what they need to do, we have to be able to answer two questions. What do I need to know? 
What do I need to do? Two most important questions in the world. Pilate said, well, what am I to do with this man called the Christ? Jesus said, who do you say I am? We talked about that last couple weeks ago. What does a person have to know to begin their walk with Jesus? And what does a person have to do to begin their walk with Jesus? And the good news is that answer has been the same for every believer throughout the entire history of mankind. The same things. After today, we'll all be able to easily explain this and make sure that if somebody rejected the promises of Jesus, they've rejected the real promise of Jesus and not some trumped up complicated message that we've made. See, our job is to present the gospel in the very real way and let people make a decision. It's not to manipulate people into making a decision that makes us feel good because God can evaluate their heart even if we can't. If you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus, or you're watching online, there's a good chance that what you've rejected is actually not the message Jesus had anyway. Someone's misrepresentation of what Jesus offers to you. At least today, you're not gonna hear a distortion of what Jesus offers and you can decide for yourself. You, all of us get to decide whether we wanna accept him or reject him. My job is to make sure you know what the offer is to make sure you know what Jesus offers us and at least know what you're rejecting. I'm not here to manipulate you. I'm not here to distort the truth, to coerce you to believe. I'm not here to manipulate your emotions to get you down at the altar. That's not what I'm about. It's not my job. My job is to preach the word in season and out of season and let the word fall on you and then you and Jesus work it out. I don't have to do that because the message of Jesus, I don't have to manipulate it. It's as clear as gravity. It's simple. You may be a total skeptic. You could be an atheist, an agnostic, it doesn't matter. I'm very glad you've joined us for this discussion. You may reject Jesus every day for the rest of your life. And that's your God-given right. It's a right given to you by God to reject him. He created you with free will. He, he allows you to decide what you wanna do with his offer, that's your choice. I'm just excited that you're gonna to hear today, maybe for the very first time, what you think you've rejected. And you and others around you will know that you finally rejected the very real offer that Jesus offers. That you understand what you're turning away from. We're gonna answer our two questions today. What do I need to believe? What do I need to do to begin my journey with Jesus? And we're gonna do it by looking at one Bible verse. Now usually I teach with dozens of Bible verses, but I told you starting your journey with Jesus is easy. You understand one verse, you got it down. In fact, I'm gonna make it even more simple because if you have even a cursory awareness of the Christian faith, there's a good chance you already know this scripture. Even if you don't go to church, even if you never memorize scripture, you probably heard this one. We're gonna to get to it in a moment, but I wanna address something else first. Let me tell you what the first step to following Jesus is not. It's not about joining or attending a church. Once you follow Jesus, he'll lead you to become active in a church. 
You'll learn to grow in the community of other Christ followers as part of your journey, but that's not the first step. The first step to following Jesus is not to go to church. You will eventually learn that following Jesus is never a solo endeavor. You will be around other believers, but your first step is something a lot more simple. Eventually you'll realize you won't grow into a disciple without community of believers. But we're looking at that very first step. Becoming a Christian is not about attending church. It's not about volunteering at church. Those things will come later. Becoming a Christian is between you and God. God reveals himself over and over and over, just like gravity. You get to a point where you just can't deny it anymore. He's there and he's, you have a relation, you can't deny it. God reveals himself, you respond with your heart. God reveals himself, you respond with your heart. Attending church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sleeping in a garage makes you a car. Following Jesus is not about getting yourself cleaned up. It's not about solving your problems to try to impress God. You can't impress him because honestly, we're not impressive. In fact, there's nothing you can do to impress God or gain his favor. We already have his favor. Following Jesus is not about saying some prayer in your mind that's disconnected from your heart. It's not about asking Jesus into your heart. It's not about repeating a magical prayer and abracadabra, you're a believer. It's not how it works. Your journey with Jesus will start from your heart, not your head. He will renew your mind later. That comes later. So you don't decide to follow Jesus. You experience him like gravity. And you follow what you know in your heart to be true. A prayer repeated in your mind that's disconnected from your heart does nothing. In fact, you become a Christian because God chose to reveal himself to you. He begins showing up in your life a lot like gravity. Over and over, time after time, he begins to reveal his presence to you. And he does it through odd circumstances, through music that's on the radio, through people that you know, through coincidences, through odd moments, through difficult moments, through challenges. God just begins to go, hey, I'm here, been here all along, but I want to make sure you know it now because you actually need me now. You needed me all along, but you didn't know you needed me. Now you know, here I am. You find something inside of you telling you you need to know more. You need to find out more. Usually something, some event in your life has made you finally realize that you're not equipped to be God. And you're not equipped to be in charge. And you're not equipped to determine the future. And you're not equipped to do any of the things you've convinced yourself you can do. And so you start looking for answers. You start looking for peace. You start looking for that part of you that's not full and, and you're trying to figure out what's wrong and so you start looking and when your heart starts looking, God starts showing up. We don't know gravity's here until we actually drop the apple. You feel yourself just being drawn to spiritual things. You don't know why. Something moves you to pursue him more. It's coming from within you, but you're not driving it. It's just happening and you may understand none of it, but the one thing you can't do is deny it. Your head is confused, but your heart's full go. I don't need to know all that stuff. I got it here. I understand. I've experienced him. He's real. The first step to following Jesus is a cry from your heart. 
to cry for help from someone who knows they're in trouble. Someone who got to the end of themselves and realized that they're desperate for help. That happened to me. I, I got to have an answer because I don't have it. The first step to following Jesus comes in a desperation from your heart to change that which you know you can't change on your own because you've tried and it's still there. Many people ask me why I don't do a lot of altar calls. It's because there's a high risk of manipulating people emotionally, getting people to react to the moment emotionally. If God is moving in someone's heart, it's constant. It's today, it's tomorrow, it was yesterday, it was the night before. God is moving in their heart. And it'll remain well beyond the emotional moment at the end of a good sermon. Altar calls, in my opinion, sometimes do more harm than good. People respond in the emotion of the moment with their heads and their heart is not yet ready to move to God. Coming to Christ is between you and God. Altar calls often just boost the ego of the pastor, make all of us feel better about our church and our mission. I know a dozens of people who have prayed a prayer at an altar and had no connection with Jesus in their heart. Jesus, please hear this, never manipulated anybody to follow him. Never encouraged them to respond only to their emotions. Altar calls seem to magnify the moment emotionally. If you're surrendered to Christ in your heart, the truth will last long after that moment. But there's a more important reason why I don't do a lot of altar calls. You can't find them in Scripture. Scriptures are incredibly simple. Acts 16.30, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You'll be saved. What, no altar call? No joining a church? No baptism? No scripture memorization? No answers about creation? No cleaning up? No fixing your problems? Just believe? Yeah, told you it was simple. That's not even the verse we're going to look at. Let's take a look at the only verse you need to know to be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's John 3.16. Almost everybody's heard of that message. Why is it up on all the football games? Because it's the message of the gospel. Why is it popular among all of John's writings? Because if you understand that, you understand the mission, the purpose, and the reason Christ is here. It answers our two questions. What do I need to know? What do I need to believe? Or what do I need to believe? And what do I need to do to follow Jesus? It's right there in this verse. To begin the journey with Christ. Let's take a look at it. For God so loved the world. The first thing that you must know in your heart is that God loves. That may be earth shattering for you. That may be just enough. That may be all you needed to know. Many think God is angry at them and trying to punish them. That he's got lightning bolts ready to throw down on you for all the mistakes you've made and that he's up here with a report card watching what you do and as soon as you do something wrong, he's gonna make something bad happen in your life. You're running from God because he's scary to you. Someone made you believe way back or recently that God hates you. 
That's not in Scripture. Scriptures are very clear. God so loves the world. So the first thing that has to happen, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to take the first step, you must know in your heart that God loves you. He loves you. You, exactly you, exactly where you are, how you are with all your mess, with all your issues, covered in dirt, whatever it is, he loves you. It's not something you know or have learned. It's not something you have to go home and convince yourself and repeat over and over until you believe it. It's gonna be something you experience. You're gonna experience his love and you're gonna know it's his and you're gonna go, Oh my God, he does love me. He really loves me. And how do you know that? Because you asked him to show you. See, many of you have never asked God to show you how much he truly loves you. Notice the word so. Scriptures don't say God loved the world. God so loved the world. In other words, his love for us is over the top, over the moon, more than we could ever imagine. It is so extravagant, so beyond our imagination, so not of this world, so unconditional, so blown up. It's incredible how much he loves us. It's so much more than anything we can dream up on this earth. He loves us so much more than we love our children, than we love our spouse, than we love each other. The love he has doesn't come from this world. It's completely unconditional. And that's why he loves you right now, where you are. Just ask God to let you experience his love and stand back. I dare you. But while God so loves you exactly the way you are, he loves you too much to leave you where you are. But his love is overwhelming. At the same time, so is his hate. You see, there's something about your life that God hates. Something, but it's not you. In fact, it's not even something you may be aware of. It's something Christ followers learn later. God loves us, but he hates what sin is doing to us and what it will do to us and how it steals from us our joy and our peace and our patience and our kindness. And, and it turns us into something that doesn't even look like God anymore. He hates sin because he loves you. The depth of his love for sin or his love for you is what drives his incredible hate for what destroys you. He hates your sin. He hates the sin that you've chosen to do. Yes, you chose it. Stop blaming other people. You decided. You chose what you do. I choose what I do. We're responsible for it no matter what the world wants to tell us. You have made choices that offended God and you have to own those. It's that simple. You allowed it, you pursued your pleasures over God's, and yes, you probably knew you were doing what God didn't want you to do. You can't claim ignorance, you probably knew. And when you pursued your pleasures over God's, it's offensive to a holy, pure, unblemished God. His capacity to overwhelmingly love is also balanced by a capacity to hate what is unholy. 
He can't stay just and pure if he ignores the ugliness and damage that sin does to those he loves. He must identify the sins and punish them. He's holy, he's just. Anything less than his full, unbridled fury against sin would be unjust and unholy. We all demand justice, right? God, when are you gonna do something about that rapist? When are you gonna do something about the Holocaust? When are you gonna do, he says, just wait. My wrath is coming. My justice is coming. You see, you and I have sinned. I'll repeat that. It's obvious, but people seem to not know that. You and I have sinned. Somebody's got to pay for it. God's poured out his anger, wrath, offense, and justice. He's going to pour it out on somebody. He has to. Can you imagine going to a God who lets all the things happen that have happened in our world? And he goes, yeah, yeah that's all right. No, he's just. One day in history, 2,000 years ago, God poured out all of his wrath onto somebody. He'd stored it up for centuries. The wrath of the sins that had happened, the ones yet to come, on that Friday afternoon, he took all of his wrath and he dumped it. Every bit of it for every sin ever done, including yours. He unleashed everything. He unleashed it like lightning from heaven. That fear that you have that lightning is going to strike you when you disobey God, it struck 2,000 years ago on a cross, which was a lightning rod. All the wrath, all the anger, all the frustration, all the desires, God poured it all out onto Jesus on the cross. His full wrath in one afternoon, the darkest day of all mankind. It turns out he loves us so much that he knew he had to pour out his wrath. And so he had to pour his wrath on somebody. So he said, I got to become one of them because I'm the only thing that can survive my own wrath and live through it. I'm going down to earth. I'm going to step into my creation and save them from what they can't do for themselves. Came to earth, became a man that we call Jesus crawled up on that cross and took the fury and wrath that was his own onto himself. God punished himself for us so we wouldn't have to. That, that's what the so means in God so loved the world. He stepped into creation because he loves us and he went to a cross and he took every bit, every ounce, every drop of the wrath of God for every sin ever to occur because he loves you hates your sin, loves you. If he hated you, he never would have come. Something else you need to know about how much God loves you and everybody else. Once he poured out his wrath onto Jesus that day, he has no more wrath. He's poured it out. It's called propitiation. Jesus paid it all. He took every bit of it. God the Father has no wrath or punishment left for us. He's not up there waiting to punish you. He's already punished Jesus. It's not Jesus and something else. He's already done it. It's past tense. He's at peace with everybody until the day they reject what Jesus did. He tells us a day will come when many will reject what he did on the cross. 
And at that time, Jesus will have all authority in heaven and on earth, and he'll be the one who punishes those who rejected what he did on the cross. See, God loves us all, but sin has to be dealt with. Somebody's got to take the wrath of God for the sins of the world and for your sins. Either Jesus took your place 2,000 years ago, or you've got a date on your own calendar with your own God and his own wrath for what you've done. That's the offer he makes. It's that simple. He says, if you reject what Jesus did, you will experience my wrath for all of eternity. Not my words, his. So the first thing you have to know above everything else that is as solid to you as gravity is that God loves me. And he loves you. And he loves everybody. And he so loved everybody that he came here. He wants to save you from the wrath that he knows he has to pour out. First thing you need to know, God loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you know what people do who are in love? They give gifts. They give gifts to demonstrate their love. And they don't give leftovers. They give their best. If you want somebody to know you really love them, you're going to give them your very best. When you love someone, you want to demonstrate it. You want to give your best, your best time, your best talent, your best treasure, your best gift. In fact, when the person is your spouse or your children, they always get the best of you first because you love them more. But what happens when you love everybody more? Everybody gets the gift, the best gift ever. The only gift, the most cherished, prized gift in the world is Jesus. The greatest gift of love is surrendering yourself to another person. I show my wife that I love her because there are times, random as they are, where I do what I don't want to do for her. It happened once. <laughs> That's what love is. Love is I'm surrendering me for your good. And if you're surrendering you for my good, things are going to be really good. That's what love is, putting other people first, putting that person first, letting them know that you care about them by giving them your very best. Giving them whatever you have that you can provide. You see, people who are in love give. Jesus says, look, show me where your money's going, I'll show you where your heart is. I'm paraphrasing. And we give proportionally to the people we love the most. We give our family more than we give to other people. We sacrifice more for our family than we would for somebody we don't know. We do that because we're human and our love is conditional. But God's love is not. He loves everyone the same. So when he came, he came for every one of us. And he offers everyone the exact same, very best gift he has, his son. God so loved the world that he gave his very best. Gave himself, surrendered on a cross so he could do what we could never do. He could take his own wrath upon himself and overcome death for all of us. When he walked out of that tomb, he said, look, I'm still standing, your sins are paid for, come, follow me. 
he would sum it up to his disciples. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You want to see the greatest love ever? Look at people who sacrifice their lives for somebody they love. So here's our first answer to our first question. What do I need to know to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ? What do I need to know? Here's what you need to know. God loved, God gave. That's it. It's all you need to know. You don't need to know formulas. You don't need to know the Bible. You don't need to know creation. You don't need to know anything. All you need to know from your experience is that God loved, God gave. Specifically, Jesus was sent to die for your sins. Either he pays or you do. The gift that he offers out of his love, the gift he's giving to you, is that you can begin your journey with Christ by believing that on that Friday afternoon, 2,000 years ago, he paid for your sins. God loved, God gave. Simple. Okay, so what about our second question? What do we need to do? Surely I have to do something. I got to do volunteer hours. I got to do something to deserve this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him. What must we do to begin? We must believe. Believe in him. Note that that verb is now present tense and ongoing. God loved, God gave is past tense, it's done. We believe is present tense. The word believe means trust in, not believe that. It's critical to understand. In fact, if this was written in today's language, it would say believes in our heart and trusts fully in him. It's not a head thing about believing something. It's a heart thing about trusting what you know to be true. Just like gravity, I believe because I've experienced. Still there. Happens every time. So does God. We believe, we trust, we experience him. Tammy flew to Chicago to see our new grandson yesterday. I'm leaving tomorrow. I will, God willing, go to the airport, put my knees solidly into hard plastic, crunch my body up into a small seat with somebody's head under my nose. I'll remain in that crunch for about two and a half hours. I can't explain how the plane lifts off. Don't know much about flying, never flew, never took pilot classes. Can't explain what even the parts of the plane do. I don't know anything about that. I never took a course on airplanes. Never joined a flying club. Never got an ace hat with a, never got that. I just bought a ticket and contorted my body because of one undeniable truth. I trust that plane's gonna take off, despite gravity. And I trust that it's gonna land me somewhere near my grandson. I have no control over it, it's just gonna happen. Now here's the point. We can know all there is to know about flying a plane. We can know everything about the physics, airlift, dynamic, everything that happens on the plane. We can know all that. We can study and learn every single physics formula about flight. We can even build our own and work on airplanes. We can repair them. We can know them inside and out. We may even work at Boeing. 
We may be on the assembly line. We may know every part of that airplane and what it does, and we would certainly know airplanes. And we could impress people with how much we know about airplanes. But in order to trust them, you got to get on one and fly. You have to place yourself in an uncomfortable position. Surrender to the possibilities. Take what you know and believe in it and trust it. People who trust airplanes are not the ones on the ground studying them. They're the ones at 30,000 feet believing in them. That kind of belief is what Jesus is talking about. What must we do to begin to follow Jesus? We must believe and trust Jesus as our Savior. God loved, God gave, we believe. We believe, we trust in his promise. What, what, what promise are we trusting in? That on that Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago, he paid for our sins. Being a Christ follower begins with a very simple truth. Just like we believe and trust that airplane to get off the ground and land in Chicago, we believe and trust the promise of Jesus to deliver us from the gravity of the consequence of our sin. We put our trust in him and the promise that our sins are paid for and we won't be punished. It's a promise for the future. Jesus made that promise to us and he gave us the free will to decide what to do with it. He said, look, I, I loved, I gave, you believe. You trust that on that day in the future, I'm gonna stand up and go, I got this. That's what you believe in. What do we need to do? Well, the first thing we need to do, believe. Put our trust in the promise of Jesus, that he is indeed our savior, that he will one day pay for our sins. He's paid for them on the cross, we'll redeem them when the time comes. Either way, we are free from the consequence of our sin because of our faith and trust in Jesus. There's one more thing we have to do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We get eternal life because we receive it. We choose to accept the gift. I, I could give you this apple as a gift. I won't because it's my last prop. Uh, but here's the thing. I can give this gift to you, but you don't have it until you take it, right? No matter how nice I try to present this apple, you have to choose whether you want to take it. The fact that I gave it to you doesn't mean that you've accepted it. You accept it when you own it, when you take hold of it, when you agree to follow. God loved, God gave, we believe, we receive. How do we answer the four questions? What do I need to know? God loved and God gave. What do I need to do? Believe and receive. It's that simple. It gets no more complicated. And you may say, well, you don't know what I've done. Uh, you're right, I don't. You don't know what I've done, so there. Okay. But here's the point. We have people come into this church from all walks of life, all different sinful things. I do drugs. I'm very prideful. I'm arrogant. I'm materialistic. I'm gay. I'm living outside of marriage in a relationship that God can't ordain. And I'm heterosexual, but I'm living in sin. I, I, I have a problem with pornography. It doesn't matter. Our job is we're going to introduce you to Jesus. And you're going to follow him. And as you follow him, he's going to change all that. Amen. He's going to take care of it. You come, you surrender. I'm going to let God do what God does. He'll work with you. None of us begin our journey with God perfect. 
we end it perfect. And in the process, he changes our desires. He changes us into people who are different, who live differently because we know, we believe, and we've received. You know, it's odd that we all wonder what happens when we die. Don't you think that's weird? Maybe it's just because I'm around death all the time. It's just weird to me that we actually wonder what happens when you die. I can, let me just tell you what happens. Right now, I'll just tell you. You stop breathing. Your heart stops. Your brain stops. Usually you get stiff after a while. They send you away. They put makeup on you. Then they have a showing to show everybody that you are indeed dead. And then they either cremate you and spread your ashes or they bury you and put a tomb there. That's what happens when you die. What do you want to know? You don't have to go to more funerals. You don't have to read more books. You don't have to walk through more cemeteries. You know what happens when people die. It happens all the time. What we're really asking is not the head question of what happens when people die. The question we're asking is the one from the heart. What will we experience when we die? That's the question. Yet we still keep asking, what happens when we die? That's the question that comes from here. The experience question comes from your heart. What am I going to experience when I die? The things of God are always in your heart. You wonder in your heart what you'll experience and where you go. That's why it's such an important question. So personal, it's so defining. Every human has the same concern and the same question. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever wondered why every culture throughout all human history seems to have this idea that something happens when we die other than makeup? Because in your heart, in your soul, when you were created, something was put into you and me and every person, something that was placed in us that tells us there's more to come. We don't know how we know, we just know there's more to come. We know that to be true. We experience it. We feel it in our hearts. We can't deny it. We know there's more to come. It's just like gravity. It's part of our experience. You couldn't convince me there's not something after this. For some reason, I just know. Every one of us wrestles with that reality. Our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, every person you lock eyes with, when alone with their thoughts, just them and God wonders, what am I going to experience and what will happen to me when I die? Going to funerals, seeing more ashes, hearing more, seeing more tombstones doesn't satisfy that curiosity. There must be more and we know it and they know it. Do you know why? Because each and every one of us bears the thumbprint of God. We're his creation in his image and he's eternal. Things he creates in his image are eternal, and they know it. Animals aren't eternal, sorry. Humans are created in the image of God. They're eternal. You instinctively know, because God put it in you when he put you together in the womb, that there is an eternity to come. It's one of the greatest evidences of God in the world. We all know. 
The gift that Jesus offers is eternal life with and in him. We become like him. We, over time, develop his love, his joy, his righteousness, his holiness. That's the promise of eternal life with him. The full measure of the gift that we've been offered. It's a gift. You don't do it. You don't make it happen. You surrender to God and his truth, and he begins to change who you are. He'll make you a fisher of men. He'll make you more like Christ. He'll change your desire so you no longer desire the thing you used to desire that offended him. It's on our sign. Out there, I think. We're a group of messed up people being transformed by the truth of God's word. We are being transformed. We're not transforming ourselves. We're not making ourselves into anything. It's happening to us, and it's obvious. Things happen within us that aren't of us. The things we used to think we don't do anymore. Some of the things that we used to enjoy, we just don't seem to enjoy anymore. God's truth starts becoming our truth. God's perspective begins to rule over ours. We embrace his truth and not ours. And the power to do that is coming from within us, but it's not us, and we know it. Just ask the people who've experienced it. It's, it's like we have a new set of glasses, a new perspective, or better yet, it's more like somebody came in and gave us a completely new operating system. It's all upgraded and everything's different and better. So how do we start this incredible journey, they ask? It's simple. It's as simple as gravity. You experience him and you just believe. You know that you know that his promises are true. What do we need to believe to start this journey? God loved and God gave. What do we need to do? We believe, we receive. That's it. There's a lot to learn later, just like the gravity club. But to start your journey with Christ, all you need to know is what you've experienced. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you made your message simple. You did love and you did give. And we choose to receive and we choose to believe. It's incredible when you think about it, but it's so simple. All the other issues can come later. All the other questions, all the other issues related to our tendencies, our sins, our desire, you can handle that. Taking first steps with you is all about from our heart asking you to reveal yourself to us so that we can experience you. So God, there may be people within the sound of my voice that just needed to know that today just needed to know that you're there and that you love them and that you came here just for them and that you died on that Friday and you resurrected on that Sunday. And because of that, there's a promise that they can put their trust and faith in you and receive the gift everybody else has received. And that's the beginning of the journey, not the end. And then you take us and you shape us and you mold us and you teach us to be fishers of men. Help us, God, to be fully engaged in that process. We love you. We thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.